A quick warning, there are curse words that are unbeeped in today's episode of the show. If you prefer a beeped version, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. Okay, so we're going to start this week's show with something that's been going on behind the scenes of this year's midterm election. It's called the precinct strategy. This is something that's been around for a while, but it wasn't a big thing until last year when Steve Bannon, remember Steve Bannon? Got a hold of the idea and started pushing it on his podcast. So Dan, the floor is yours. You're, you're, you're about to offer a course on personal political empowerment. How did they do it, Dan? This right here is the video that what started it all. It's from February 2021. Like just Steve Bannon being the Steve Bannon we've come to know. He's wearing at least three shirts. He's framed by a row of MAGA hats lined up on a mantle. And he's bringing on this guest, who is a longtime Arizona activist named Dan Schultz. Dan Schultz is here to solve a problem. Thanks, Steve. It's, it's real simple, and uh, most people learn this, at least I did, back in the late 60s in seventh grade in social studies. In okay, so what he lays out here, the way that Schultz and Bannon see this, the reason that Donald Trump isn't president anymore it's not just, you know, election fraud by the Democrats. That's obviously a given for them. But the real problem in 2020 was the Republicans who let them get away with it. They didn't do every last thing in their power to keep President Trump in office. What they're talking about is the mainstream Republicans in, you know, Arizona and Georgia and Michigan, people who went ahead and certified the election results for Joe Biden, accepted that Trump lost, did not stand by him in his neediest hour. To prevent that from happening again, Dan Schultz and Steve Bannon want an army of MAGA enthusiasts to be in place and be ready for the coming election in just a few weeks. And they're going to do this by getting people to sign up for the lowest level positions in the Republican Party. It's a job called precinct committeemen. I've got my PC button on. Precinct committeemen. Precinct committeemen are the party. And if, if you want to put up graphic number four, um, I, uh, it, it uh, basically explains um, that there's about 400,000 of these party positions in our party nationwide, but over 200,000 of them are vacant. What we have to do is we have to take over the party and there's only one way to do it. The precinct committeemen are the party. Precinct committeemen do all kinds of political grunt work, door knocking, phone banking, leafleting. They often work as official poll watchers on election day for the party. But in addition, and this might not sound like a big deal, but it's key, they often elect officials higher up in the Republican Party who elect the officials even higher up than that, who elect the state parties and the national party and decide where the GOP is going to spend money and what races to back. They decide the party platform. They determine what the party officially stands for. These are the jobs at the bottom that Steve Bannon wants to fill, the people who believe that the last election was stolen, people who are very excited at the chance to do something, anything, to prevent an election from being stolen again. And Bannon has kept the drumbeat going for months and months to get MAGA, Stop the Steal people, to sign up for these jobs. For instance, in August, Bannon pulled the audience of the Moment of Truth Summit in Missouri, which was hosted by Mike Lindell, the My Pillow guy, who's turned election conspiracy theorist. Sir, look, how many guys here are precinct committeemen? A few weeks back, Bannon asked one of his correspondents at a Trump rally in Pennsylvania to poll a group of supporters there. Okay, question from Steve to everybody here. How many of you are precinct committee men 
or how many of you are going to become precinct committee men to take over the Republican Party? We've got one, two. I'm a judge of elections. Judge of elections. We got three. And I run for state committee, but we got two people in out of 16. Okay, so we got four. Anyone else? And if you if you aren't yet, you got to do it. This is the key, guys. And to the audience out there, Steve says it every day, but this is the key. You can't just come out here and fly your flags. You got to get in the fight. Knock on doors, make phone calls, go to the elections offices, take over the Republican Party. We have to MAGA the Republican Party. The person who first reported that there's this surge of new Stop the Steal recruits becoming precinct committeemen around the country for the Republican Party was Isaac Arnsdorf. He was a ProPublica when he did that. These days, he's a politics reporter at The Washington Post. And he's been tracking this takeover of the Republican Party in swing states all over the country. He allowed us to tag along with him. We were happy to go. He and one of our producers, Zoe Chase, hit the road together to see how the presence of these Stop the Steelers is changing things. If they get their way, it's going to shift the party and the way we do elections pretty fundamentally for years to come. From WBZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. One, Magazona. So um, today on our show, we're going to look at how all this is playing out in Arizona, a place that some MAGA people like to call Magazona. And we chose Arizona because the movement there has really been setting the pace for the rest of the country. People who believe the 2020 election was stolen tried to recall Republican officials there. They also pushed for a hand recount of millions of ballots that became a model for other states around the country who tried it even though in Arizona it revealed that Joe Biden won the election with even more votes than they had thought. The audit in Arizona galvanized tons of people who wanted to do more, and lots of those people jumped into the precinct strategy. So in Arizona, you can really see the effect that strategy is having. That is what Isaac and Zoe have been out there co-reporting. Here's Isaac. All over the country, almost everywhere I called, Georgia, Florida, Texas, There were local-level Republican officials who were getting flooded with new people wanting to become precinct committee members. A lot of these officials didn't know about the precinct strategy. They hadn't seen Steve Bannon's interview with Dan Schultz. And they were frankly a little puzzled by what was happening. Like Kathy Petsis in Maricopa County, Arizona. It was a rainstorm of people who all of a sudden, out of the woodwork, were wanting to suddenly become precinct committee members. I used to get like two or three people a month. And now I was getting 40 to 50. Yeah. Oh, I'm not kidding. I I see your look. No, 40 to 50 applications like thrown at me. Sometimes in a week. Kathy is old school. An OG Republican, she says. She was stuffing mailers for the party when she was 12 or 13. When she was a teenager, she was awarded Outstanding Teenage Republican. She got to meet President Reagan in the Rose Garden. Puts a McCain sign on her lawn every year for his birthday. She's been a precinct committee member for 40 years. As district chair, she had 454 precinct committee slots. And she had a clear idea of who a precinct committee member should be. Someone who knows the neighborhood and the people in it. Someone knowledgeable about local Republican politics. And Kathy wanted to know who are all these new people who suddenly wanted to do this unglamorous job. She started taking the applicants out to meet one-on-one. I ended up having coffee with 156 people I've never met before. And about it, I mean, sometimes it was multiple times a day I would go and meet with people. 
they would start bringing up the things that we've all heard about, the videos, the this and that, and oh, this is out there, and you really should watch this, and you should read this, and to try to explain to me, like, how I really didn't know anything about the election and the process. Yeah. Basically saying there's, like, a conspiracy rigging this election. Yeah. You've been involved in local politics for a long time, but you don't understand the depth of this I conspiracy. And No, they would... Yeah. And so, you know, we would have an interesting conversation. I don't mind paying for their coffees. I, you know, it's interesting. No one rational, no one who has a, you know, has voted over and over and over again actually believes that. To be clear, not all the new applicants thought the election was stolen. But a lot of them did. And Kathy thought what they were saying was nuts. As a district chair... Kathy had the authority to appoint the new precinct committee members or not. Other chairs in other districts were like, cool, whatever, sign them up. But Kathy decided she was going to screen the new people. And after every meeting, I would go back and just kind of look at, maybe I had to look up their voter history, only to find out that some of them actually weren't registered Republicans. Some, many had only recently registered to vote, had never voted, but in a coffee or a meeting or something with them, they would tell me about massive fraud they'd seen. And I think, you never voted. You know, I I felt like, you know, it's my, I'm the one signing off, Right. right? I want to feel pretty comfortable about what I'm signing off on. And it's my prerogative. It says in our bylaws, it, my choice. So those people who just registered to vote, talking about massive fraud? Pleasure to meet you. See you around. Kathy's going to look for someone else to fill that slot. This was also like your sneaky criteria for eliminating some of these new stop the steal people, I feel like. Sneaking. Who isn't sneaking? How could that be sneaky? I guess because it's like... I think what I mean by the word sneaky is like, you could say if you believe the election was stolen, then you don't get to be... It was a fair standard. You want to talk about the election. I want to talk about it with people who actually participate in elections. Kathy didn't think people who were telling her about massive voter fraud would make good messengers for the party. They weren't wild about her either. with one of the people Kathy was trying to keep out of the precinct committee, Marissa Hamilton. And when I brought up Kathy's name, Marissa lunged, lobbing the worst insult you could against a fellow Republican. Kathy Petza supported, quietly supported Biden. She wouldn't let people become precinct committeemen uh, if they supported Trump. So, have you interviewed Kathy Petzis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's lying to you. So, Kathy Petzis did not support Trump. She told people to vote for Biden. She was a never-Trumper, a bold never-Trumper. Kathy actually seems to be a once-Trumper, says she supported him in 2016, just not anymore. Still, Kathy insists she never supported Biden and didn't tell anybody else to either. The idea is anathema to Kathy. Marissa says she heard that Kathy even recruited Democrats to switch parties and become Republicans in order to install them as precinct committeemen under her control to keep control of her legislative district. This may have happened in only one case, I think. 
And I believe Kathy didn't know the Republican donor she recruited was actually a registered Democrat in her mad dash to recruit PCs who didn't believe the election was stolen. Anyway, Marissa found out the kinds of people Kathy was recruiting, all while people like her were being ignored, and she was mad. Also, Kathy stopped holding regular PC meetings. She says because of COVID, Marissa thinks it was to keep people out so she wouldn't have to hear from those who disagreed with her within her legislative district. People say LD here. I felt that the frustrations that we saw with Stop the Steal came from people not knowing how to operate their government, not knowing how to participate. But if you're, if you're living in an LD where the chair won't let you participate, then of course it's going to manifest into something like Stop the Steal because people are going to have no other outlet than to just be mad. This feud isn't just Kathy versus Marissa. Everywhere you go, there's some version of old-school Republicans getting overrun by MAGA election deniers at this ground-floor, precinct level of the party. Marissa believes the election was compromised. We'll never know who won, she says, but thinks of herself as more reasonable than other Stop the Stealers, and a data expert of sorts because of work she's done in the past in supply chain management. Right after 2020, she launched her own research project into how many dead people were voting. She claimed to have found 33. The attorney general then looked at it and found that only one of those was real. It wasn't a nefarious ballot harvester from the Democrats. It was a Republican who'd voted her recently deceased mother's ballot, and she was indicted. Marissa says Kathy ridiculed any research into the 2020 election, which made her especially mad. Kathy says she has no idea what Marissa is referring to. But Kathy doesn't have any patience for that kind of research. It's true. You know, she's one of those who gloms on to, uh, hey, here's an idea that everybody's, like, making hay out of, and I'm going to do it too because I don't have anything else going on. I might as well do this. And so that's her deal. She's a good grifter, really good grifter. Harsh, Kathy. But it's true. It's sad. She could she could do good, but she chooses to mislead people, and that's... I have no space for that. Marissa started rallying other PCs and wannabe PCs who'd been blocked by Kathy Petsis to do something about her. And I was like, so what do you want to do? And he was like, we're firing Petsis. And I said, okay, let's just get people organized to work in the district. They called a meeting, a meet and greet, she called it. Others called it a resistance meeting. We had almost 40 to 50 people show up. It quickly turned into a very loud, rowdy conversation. They wanted to fire Kathy Petsis. They were mad that she wasn't letting them participate. These are active, these are active sitting PCs that are elected PCs. Um, then Marissa and her crew found a workaround in the bylaws, a way to go over Kathy's head, to get people onto Kathy's precinct committees. She could send the applications to the Republican county chair, who wasn't on Team Kathy. Then she could approve it and give it to the recorder's office. You got 100 to 200 precinct committee men appointed that way? Yes. That's what Marissa says. Kathy says it was more like 25 to 30 people who got in over her head. In any case, that's how Marissa and a whole bunch of new Stop the Steal recruits got on Kathy's committee. Kathy was trying to jam a lid on a pot that was boiling over. Even before this attempt to take over precinct committee positions, the Arizona Republican Party was pretty dominated by MAGA people. 
And after they tried to recall the Republican elected officials who certified the election, and after they spent millions of dollars to recount ballots by hand, their next target was this election, the midterms. They wanted to put Stop the Steelers in office, who would actually do in future elections what Republican officials wouldn't do in 2020. Because when I'm governor, we're going to take a sledgehammer to these damn electronic voting machines. That's Carrie Lake, former local news anchor, now a candidate for governor. She said she would not have certified the 2020 election results. Same goes for Mark Fincham, a candidate for Secretary of State, which is the top elections official. Fincham is also an oath keeper who was at the Capitol on January 6th, though he says he wasn't involved in the violence. Both Lake and Fincham want to get rid of vote counting machines, get rid of voting by mail. If they take office, they'd be in the position to refuse to certify future elections. These are the candidates that the new precinct committee people are generally supporting. In the primary, they had competition from more mainstream establishment Republicans, politicians who didn't claim the election was stolen, people Kathy supported. Hi, how are you? I'm Kathy. A few days before the August primary, Kathy's out door knocking, getting out the vote for Karen Taylor Robeson, establishment candidate running against the aforementioned election truther Carrie Lake. Kathy is the most determined, maybe desperate door knocker I've ever met. Almost seven days a week, for months now, she's door knocking. She wears the same big sun hat each day, washes her vote t-shirt most nights. It's almost a full-time job, seems like. Today, she's brought Bo with her, running for Secretary of State. Says he was recruited by the business community of Phoenix because the real Republicans are concerned that the Trump-endorsed oath keeper, Fincham, is leading in the polls. We're with the Republican Party. I'm, I'm a precinct committee member. I'm here for Bo Lane. Bo and I actually were uh, teenage Republicans together at Central High School. And Karen Robeson-Taylor, who's also a fellow native of Arizonan, and she's running for governor of the state of Arizona. I've seen a lot of that. Uh, Have you you made a decision on governor yet? No. I'll tell you, we need some changes here, that's for sure. Change is not really what Kathy is selling, unfortunately. We only stop at one house where someone's outwardly enthusiastic for her candidate, Karen. At our last stop, Kathy leans over a fence as a woman explains why she'd never vote for her. I was considering her, but she did two things that I found unacceptable. One is actually putting Pence up with her. I'm sorry, I barely respect that man. And, uh, God, I can't remember the other one right now, but she did two things, and that was one of them. Uh, If she's bringing in people that I have no respect for, and I've also done some research. She's getting a lot of -of out-of-state money. I'd much rather see in-state money. Well, so is Carrie Lake, by the way. I don't care about I don't want that. Thank you. Well, these are other people. I've pulled out her information. I'm more than capable of doing my research. Well, would you consider voting for me for Secretary of State? I would consider voting for you. Thank you. You're not yet appended. (laughs) And so do you think you're going to vote for Carrie Lake then? I'm not certain. Well, please re- please think about Karen again. I, I, we would appreciate your consideration of her because we know her personally. We know that she would be a great executive. She has the right skills. She has executive leaders. Well, Carrie Lake read 
content on the news. Yes, she did. I don't admire any media, but I do admire somebody who says enough is enough, and I'm not going to do it anymore. She was never in the trenches. She's somebody who, when we were trying to get Republicans elected for president, voted for Obama, or what, and I don't care. People get to change their mind. They get to smarten up. I did. Okay. Well, good luck, well, and thank you very much. And I, As we walk away, we hear a distinct fuck you called after us. Back in the car, they're moving on to the next neighborhood. Do you ever think you're being like... Mm, in a bad know, like, movie? <laughs> <laughs> like, if I'm in a nightmare? And like, how in the world did everything turn on its head? Well, do you? I do. You know, what's, you know, what's hard is that, you know, we had a great group of congressmen from Arizona. And now we have sort of this backbencher kind of group that went off on these crazy conspiracy theories. I don't know. I mean, this is your party. Like, this is where the new energy in the party is coming from. All this stolen election stuff. If the party really is serious about winning, then they look at who are the best candidates that can win a general election. We are not here. There is a big group of us. We are not here for halftime. Arizona is known as a fairly conservative state, at least until 2020. But actually, only about a third of the state's registered voters are Republicans. A little less than a third are Democrats. The rest are independents. So whoever wins the general has to win with independence. Kathy thinks the Curie Lakes of the world can't do that. But that's not who's voting in the Republican primary, not who's filling up the precinct slots in the local Republican Party. One of the biggest things these Stop the Steal newbies are doing, now that they're part of the party organization at the bottom rung, as precinct committee people, is that they're setting up an infrastructure to watch all the voting locations in the midterms, to catch the fraud they didn't catch in 2020. They've signed up as official Republican Party poll watchers at voting locations. On primary day, outside one of those locations, a big suburban church in Mesa, we meet up with Peggy Dumas, someone who never paid attention to her precinct until she just became a committee member. She's got her snacks, her knitting, a notebook, and a pen to take notes. It's her first time poll watching. She picked a quiet polling place. I thought Peggy would be excited to get a piece of the action to catch the cheaters red-handed. But actually, she didn't want that. You know, I get worked up. <laughs> you know me. Um, and they probably throw me out. <laughs> Basically, she's scared she's going to hulk out. I have to confront somebody. It's not going to get pretty. So I have to watch my temper. <laughs> like, what do you imagine happening? Not you? really, nothing. I think... I think it's because they know we're watching. Going with her as she voted just before her shift, Peggy was super suspicious that something was going to go down. She brought her own pen to vote. Because in 2020, some of the polling places provided Sharpie pens, and there was a conspiracy theory that the machines couldn't read those ballots. Okay, what kind of pens are we talking about? Well, the pen is in there. They're felt tip. No, I'm not using felt tip. That's not happening. Peggy is a classic new precinct committee member. Before it was the Sharpies, it was the birth certificate. 
I've really got involved in it probably since I was involved in the Tea Party back during uh, Obama. Why are you doing air quotes at Obama? Because uh, you don't even want to know. You don't want to go into all that. That's, that's done and over with. There's nothing we can do about it. <laughs> that's over. Um, so that's what got me involved then. And then, of course, with this election in 2020. This was a tough time for Peggy, in a way. She says she quit her job during the pandemic. She thought she might be ready to retire. Her job was she helped people who were underwater figure out how to pay off their debts. She lives alone with her dogs, whom she dotes on, and she ended up spending a ton of time on her phone reading about the election being stolen by nefarious actors. Like a lot of people I talked to, the radicalizing moment for Peggy was the moment that Fox called the election for Biden so early. Like, it just seemed so obvious to her that the fix was in. There must be more Trump voters than Biden ones in Arizona. Long car caravans of them. Rallies with thousands and thousands of people. The only way Biden could have won is cheating. And for Peggy, just the frustration that nobody did anything about it. She saw the Bannon video. She signed up as a PC. The PC strategy is the way to take and elect the right people. Get the right people elected. Okay. Period. Get the rhinos out. I don't like them either. I dislike the rhinos worse than the Democrats. You're supposed to be a Republican, and you don't support us. I I dislike them worse, because as far as I'm concerned, they're traitors. Now that all these people who believe there's fraud everywhere are going to be stationed inside the polls, I wanted to find out what instructions they were getting. What were they going to do once they were there? We tried getting into one of these trainings in Arizona, but the state party wouldn't let us. But this is happening all over the country. It's the same idea. And we were able to listen in on a training in Georgia. Okay. I was confused when you said not interfere with the process, and yet we're supposed to watch very keenly the emptying of a Dropbox. Okay, so if you see somebody coming in with a large number of ballots... um, Hang on, the deal with this, in lots of states, including Georgia, it's illegal to deliver other people's ballots, except family and household members. There are a lot of conspiracy theories about Democrats going around with big stacks of fake ballots and sticking them in Dropboxes. So if that's what you see, here's what the trainer says you should do you go immediately to the poll manager and you, and you question them and say, I think I saw somebody come in and drop off more than one ballot and maybe a few more than one ballot and see what they do. So I wouldn't um, run after the person and ask them any questions or talk to them. I would go outside and um, I would take a picture of them and I would take a picture of their um, their, um, their license, okay, and take a picture of their car. As much evidence as we could get. This is the point they keep coming back to over and over. Gather evidence that Republicans can use in lawsuits to challenge the results. Not just in this county in Georgia, but everywhere. So then we could take that and open an investigation and use that as evidence, right? But do not talk to them, do not ask them questions, Do not confront them. Do not talk to any voters. I'm not sure that following someone out to their car and taking pictures of their license plate wouldn't lead to a confrontation. 
But the thing that really struck me was the people taking the training. They weren't shying away from the action like Peggy. They sounded like they were spoiling for a fight. They wanted to catch wrongdoers in the act. I just want to say, the feeling that I get from this poll watching thing is that we're watching a mugging and all we're doing is taking definitions. Yes, we're describing the assailant and being able to turn it over to the police. Who aren't going to do anything about it. An hour later and then hope that they do. Yes, exactly. Well, this is where but if this is what we're here for, if this, no, is, if, if this is the definition of this job of no, watcher, where we are noting and declaring and documenting, then right. get, I get it. So that is the simplistic um, explanation. But if there's a problem, we can address it right away. We have attorneys, and we are not going to wait, and we're not going to wait for a lame Secretary of State to not do anything. I don't want to give you the wrong impression. Most of this training was pretty by the book, a PowerPoint with lots of boring details about the state law. The poll watchers get long, detailed checklists of all the little things they're supposed to write down and photograph. Even the serial numbers for the zip ties that are used to lock up the voting machines. Tons of stuff that could be used in a lawsuit challenging the results. Back in Arizona, I'm doing a ride-along with another first-time poll watcher on primary day. And, you know, it's pretty simple. You just watch for things that are out of the ordinary. I have binoculars if I need them. Um, Mark's not an official um, poll watcher with the Republican Party. He's operating sort of off the books. Okay. He volunteers with We the People AZ Alliance. A it's a group co-founded by one of the newer district chairmen. Mark's whole job during the primary is to drive around in an enormous black car and observe polling places from the parking lot, looking for infractions. He takes notes in a little book. Wait, tell me, what are you writing down? One of the poll watchers leaving, that's all. You're a journalist, aren't you? Uh-huh. Okay. Where was the follow-up question? How did you know it was a poll watcher? Uh-huh. What just walked behind us without looking? Well, I, there was a voter. Okay. Because he has the green envelope. Okay. Good. How many? It looked like two. Very good. But yeah, how did you know it was a poll watcher? Because it's one of us. That's why. Okay. How many is she carrying? I didn't see. Okay. She's carrying one. How many are those two carrying? I can't see. Oh, okay. None. They're going in to vote. Okay. Mark dates his distrust of the government back to 9-11. One of the many tattoos that covers his arms commemorates the towers. Is there anything you could see out here with your own eyes that would convince you that the fix isn't in, that there's not cheating? I guess I'm just suspicious of everything. You, you have to have eyes that everything is wrong. We head to another polling station. When we pull out, someone replaces us, apparently. Somebody is coming, yes. Oh, wow. Is there someone? There can't be someone at every single spot. Is there? I'm just going to say this, that. The evildoers, 
do not know, will not know whether there is or isn't. And I have to leave it there. At the next place, we see something suspicious. Someone may be campaigning inside the 75-foot perimeter. They appear to be right on the line to me. Mark's trying to snap a good picture of them with their faces to include in his report. Okay, see? Yeah. All right, come on, honey, one more time. There it is. All right, we're going to do this. Stay buckled up because we're going to go. He jumps out of the car. I have no idea why. I know he told me not to, but I follow him. He takes a selfie with them and then comes back to the car. He's clearly mad at me. I'm sorry. Now he thinks we're first newscast. I was confused. I didn't know what you were doing. I didn't want to miss it. You have a windshield in front of you. But it's radio. He's writing down his report. 4.28, he's whispering, which is the time. We're burned at that place now, he says. When you opened that door, I lost complete control of the situation. And I know you don't fully understand. 8.4 miles, turn left onto I know you don't fully understand why Mark is agitated to the level he is, but one of them is the safety. Are going to be doing this at the general election, too? Yeah. Are you worried about that? Yeah. What are you worried about? That the election's going to get stolen again. Did you ever watch a uh, video of... President Trump being in this rotunda, this great hall, and he's got a bunch of people around him, and he said something about the storm, and a reporter asked, you know, what's the storm, Mr. President? And his response was, you'll see. What do you think the storm is? Uh, What does it mean to you? At the moment it was said, it was just said. Right. Time rolls on, it's very obvious what the storm is. And I'm sorry that you don't see it. What is it? We're the storm. The people. Think about it. I can't give you all the answers, lady. Anything of note in Mark's reports is put into a spreadsheet, I'm told. So if it's like someone gets out of a red Honda with a whole bunch of ballots, and then later someone else sees a red Honda and someone getting out with a bunch of ballots, it'll be caught and they can investigate further if that's maybe an illegal ballot harvester. It's primary night. I'm with Kathy at the watch party for her candidate, the establishment candidate, Karen Taylor Robson. We're in a ballroom at a really fancy resort. They're serving canapes, duck and gruyere tarts. The crowd here is feeling great right now because Karen Taylor Robson is leading Trump-endorsed Carrie Lake. Karen lives in LD28, 
Kathy's district. We're just going to call it the establishment. Okay. You know, we did This is definitely the establishment. This is right here. Well, you know what? Guess what? They work hard, they give money, and they get people elected. And if that's the establishment, we'll take it all day long. Kathy and I go to the bar for a drink, so I stop recording for a while. As the night goes on, the results start to change as more Election Day ballots are counted. Carrie Lake is closing the gap. Finally, she takes the lead. For a few minutes, I'm alone with Kathy. She's tearing up and staring off blankly. I'm going to be sick, she says at one point. I can't be a PC in this. I turn my recorder on again. Okay. Well, what just happened, we had our candidate for governor um, is now down by 1,033 votes after leading all night. She may not pull it out. And this was our hope at having a competent, capable, pragmatic candidate for the governorship here in Arizona and not have to deal with somebody who just makes up lies and spews them as uh, her own personal truth. So I'm disappointed right now. After the primary, Kathy has to think about what to do. She isn't going to go out knocking on a thousand doors for these nominees who she can't stomach. There are some local candidates she'll campaign for and registering people to vote. She's been approached to sign on to some lists of Republicans endorsing the Democratic candidates, but Kathy won't go there. She isn't the party chair in her district anymore. She actually decided not to run again. But the newbies didn't let her go quietly anyway. They made their move with a formal proceeding against her a few months before the primary before her term as district chairman ended. So we're going to proceed with the hearing, and we'll go from there. Kathy describes this proceeding as a kangaroo court. It was a trial overseen by the county chair of the Maricopa County Republican Party, MCRC, and adjudicated by a committee of her fellow district chairman. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It says in the rules that she has to say whether she pleads guilty or not guilty. Not guilty. Okay, thank you. You may proceed. Up front, there's a long table with the executive committee, like a tribunal, with small tables around the room with the other district chairmen, who are like the jurors. Kathy sits at the table nearest the door. The charge against her? She was accused of endorsing a Democrat in a Phoenix City Council race last year. Ms. Bestas, how long have you been a PC and how long have you been a member of the MCRC? Excuse me, could you please pronounce my name properly? I would love to. I don't know how to. How long have you been a precinct committee member? About seven months. Okay, I've been one 40 years. Congratulations. Point of order, please answer the question. Um, Please pronounce my name properly. Please tell me how to pronounce your name. It's spelled P-E-T-S-A-S. And it is pronounced? Pet-sess. That is exactly what I said. You said pest-sess. Okay, go ahead. And I'm chairman pet-sess. Eventually, the prosecutor gives up on the Socratic method and just reads aloud from Kathy's quote in the newspaper, saying something nice about the Democratic City Council candidate. 
Kathy argues that this quote is not an endorsement, and the race wasn't even partisan. One of Kathy's supporters points out that Carrie Lake, the gubernatorial candidate who the Stop the Steelers love, she supported Obama in 2008. The county chair's not having it. I don't know what this has to do with anything, she says. I don't know what this has to do with anything. Okay, we're doing that one out. I think that means, is this similar kangaroo court going to happen to Ms. Lake since this is a year later and you're bringing something up like this, are you going to do the same thing to Ms. Lake if she's governor? I don't think she's a PC. What are you going to do? No, stop. Answer the question, Kevin. Kathy's asked to step out of the room. She refuses, challenges the secret ballot. I make the motion that this vote be roll call vote and be in the minutes of who voted yay or nay. She goes down fighting, but she goes down. The verdict is guilty. Kathy gets stripped of her voting rights as a precinct committee member. We talked about it later on the phone. I mean, it, it feels terrible. You know, it, it feels gut-wrenching. No, this isn't what you work hard for, to be treated this way. Kathy still goes to her district meetings, even though she's not the chair anymore. The new chair is one of the guys who plotted to overthrow Kathy. There's an ongoing dispute over whether she's allowed to vote on anything. She spends the meetings needle-pointing. The meetings open with prayers now. That's new. We pray for those that are volunteering to watch the vote. We pray that if there is any wrongdoing, it would be caught and stopped. We thank you and pray for each of the precinct committee people. And each of the so Kathy is gritting her teeth, refusing to give up, because she's sure the party under this new leadership is bound to implode. And when it does, she wants to be there to pick up the pieces. We talked about it with her and her husband, Bill, over dinner after the meeting. You know, we're optimistic it'll pass. I don't know, it's probably not this cycle. It might be another cycle or two, but it will pass. I don't know. It has to. Well, first of all, Trump's 77, 78. But Carrie Lake's 52. Yeah, but it's without Trump, there's not Lake. I mean, I know they're trying to make the movement without Trump, like to survive it, but I'm I'm not as op- I'm not as optimistic for them that that will happen. I told Bill I wasn't so sure. Making the MAGA movement endure without Trump is what the precinct strategy is all about. It's making election denial a permanent fixture of the GOP, institutionalized within the party organization itself, so deeply ingrained that you can't extract it. You can't just lop off the head. It's MAGA all the way down. So we're taking over the Republican Party through the precinct committee strategy. We're taking over all the elections. Suck on this. Thank you, Steve Bannon. Isaac Arnsdorf is the national political reporter at The Washington Post. Zoe Chase is one of the producers of our show. Isaac is working on a book about the MAGA movement trying to take over the Republican Party and America. It's called Ground Game. It'll be out next fall. Coming up, righteous middle schoolers monitoring a teacher who, of course, is supposed to be monitoring them. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. 
It's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Today's program, Watching the Watchers, people deciding on their own that it is their job to make sure that bad things don't happen, and then beginning their own surveillance of suspected wrongdoers. We've arrived at Act 2 of our show. Act 2, I'll be watching you. Sixth grade isn't that old, but it's old enough to tell right from wrong, and it's old enough to know that adults aren't always perfect. And at Davisville Middle School in Rhode Island, this one sixth grader couldn't help but notice that one of his teachers was doing stuff that just felt a little weird. Much, much later, the teacher would be removed from the school for his behavior. But at this stage, early on, the sixth grader was seeing certain things for the first time. Like at Halloween. He was, like, making remarks about some of the girls' costumes and makeup that were coming off as creepy and flirtatious. What did he say? Like, getting in close to them and saying how they're... Or this, this girl's, like, thing looked ridiculous. I was making fun of her in a way to flirt with her, like... And he was standing very close to her physically? He was just, he was just getting in closer, and he was kind of leaning in a way where it looked... It, it just seemed creepy. It se- something seemed off about it. You could just sense it. I don't know, it seemed like she was uncomfortable by it, like, nervously laughing at it. Over time, this teacher did other things, he says, the kinds of stuff the kids notice. He asked the girl to take off her shoe and wiggle her toes for him, made an unsettling joke about how everybody should come to school in their bathing suits. And as the school year continued, that one girl from Halloween was a special target. And um, I would remember him always stopping the class to make remarks about her, her appearance, or calling her pet names, making, like, a play on, like, her name, uh, put it in, like, nursery rhymes or songs. He just started conversation with her individually in front of the whole class, like talking about stuff that was not related to class just to make her laugh. You can notice she's like like nervously laughing or blushing at it. Uh, the other kids in the class were like weirded out by it. Everybody sits there in like awkward silence as you do that. Did you ever talk to her about it? Um, not that year, no, but she did make comments the next year about how she hated when he would do that. He says other girls make comments, too. They would say, like, oh, he's weird. Like, they wouldn't use creepy. They, they, he's weird to us. He's weird. I don't like him. I don't like him being weird. At first in sixth grade, I kind of questioned maybe this is just normal, how teachers act, how some treat girls, but... Like, my friends all confirmed. They're like, no, this guy's creepy. Like, I had said it to some of my friends on the bus, some people at the bus stop, too. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, I noticed that, too. He's really creepy. Did you know he said blah, blah, blah? He did blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, it's obviously not just me thinking. And it wasn't just the way this teacher was with the girls. The sixth grader says that he was kind of a jerk with the boys. He says any kind of off-task behavior, you get you reprimanded if you were a boy. Send to the office. He says the teacher actually bragged that so many kids had complained about him in the past for being strict. He said they could try themselves. Wouldn't do any good. All this bothered the sixth grader enough that he went to two different adults. One of them was his mom. And he didn't go into a lot of depth, but he told them, this teacher's a creep. Flirts with the girls in class. He's a pedo. And both adults were like, whoa, 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 whoa. Take a breath. So they're like, don't make such accusations. Like, don't throw such stuff around, because that's, that's a very serious accusation. And that's perfectly understandable. I understand that. He and his friends couldn't let it go, though. They'd talk about it when they'd hang out, when they were online playing Minecraft or Super Smash Brothers. It just seemed wrong. And so, lacking any power to do anything else, 
They talked about it, joked about it. Finally, they decided to do the one thing you can do when you can't fix what's wrong with the world, but still feel a strong sense of outrage. They became watchers. They decided to document everything the teacher did with the girls that seemed weird or inappropriate to them. In a Discord channel they set up, Discord, if you don't know, is a messaging platform. They called the Discord channel Pedo Database. Did you guys think, oh, this is, this is, that's, we came up with a great name. We just did it, yeah, we just did it because the name was funny. To be clear, he knows he's using the word pedo loosely. The pedo database was an inside joke between a small group of boys who hated this teacher because he was so harsh with them. But they were also totally serious about the way he was treating the girls. And, and is the idea that you think you might accumulate enough evidence that you guys will go to the authorities at some point? I don't know what that was. I mean, in the in my log, we just said, um, this is now the official chat that we will later use as evidence against him about pedophilia. That's the word I used in case anything does come up in the future and we do turn out to be correct. And I said whenever he said something creepy towards the girls in our class, post in quotes with the date here. Logging the date was actually something they got from watching TV and movies. True crime. Like keeping dates, keeping times, like keeping stuff logged on paper. And then we gave, I gave an example of something he had said that day, and that's how it began. What was the thing he had said that day? Um, he had, had called a girl uh, the word, like he had said, bad to them, like bad dog type thing, but then used her name. Right, right. Like bad Melanie. Yeah, exactly. I had under it said in a flirty way multiple times today towards multiple girls in the class, including, and then I put their names in. Evidence posts will be kind of like this. That's that's what I said. That was the establishing like thing there. After that, everybody just they understood and they took it seriously about putting the dates and stuff. And every few weeks, the teacher did something noteworthy enough that one of the boys would jot it down on a pad secretly, right then in class, or type it directly into Discord on his phone, adding an entry to the database log. These kids finished with that teacher, moved on to the next teacher. But to keep the log going, they enlisted kids who had him the next year. And they read the new entries. It's not like we wanted him to say bad things, but it was satisfying when we did, because then we'd be like, all right, great, another piece for the record. Every time every time he said something, we it's like we pictured him like punching himself in the face. It's interesting to me that it was all boys doing this. I would think that girls would have wanted to get in on it if they knew it existed. Perhaps they would have, but we didn't hmm. bring it up, but I'm sure maybe some of them would. We just didn't really have any girls in our friend group. Oh, right. Right. Middle school. Yes, exactly. The reporter who broke this story and revealed the pedo database to the world is Amanda Malkovitz of the Boston Globe. And the reason it became public, the reason she wrote a story, is that in April of this year, the teacher was removed from his job and put on leave because of allegations that he'd stalked a girl, a preteen, at the school. After that happened, there was a public appeal to families in the school for any information about other incidents involving this teacher. And my mom told me about it, and I told her, oh, well, we have this whole log my friends and I compiled. I, w- I was actually shocked. I mean, it was almost like we predicted the future when I'd, I was like, oh, my God, I could, like, it all paid off. Did you have this feeling of, like, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe that we yeah, get to use this thing. Definitely. Because did you think it was ever going to pay off that it that it was ever going to be used honestly i didn't think so i mean this guy was there for so long no one could do anything about him um and for all i knew they would like when i brought this up to a lawyer i thought maybe they would just all laugh at 
this their thing. Like it's like yeah. a Discord chat with a bunch of people with funny like profile photos and names. Like I didn't know if that could be used as actual evidence against someone. I, I was very surprised about that. Yeah. We reached out to this teacher for an interview about all this, but he didn't return our calls or texts. One thing about this story, the name of the teacher has not been made public, or the names of the minors involved, including the boys who ran the pedo database. In fact, the voice that you've been hearing for this interviewee is a young actor, Edgy Robertson, who's imitating the real student as closely as possible to keep that kid anonymous. Though after uh, reporter Amanda Melkovitz published her story in the Boston Globe, it was picked up widely, got passed around on social media, and naturally, the news got back to school. We had seen some people reposting it on Instagram. I think I heard a couple of people talking about my, uh, my friend told me that his, like, a lot of people in this math class were talking about it. This is a friend that was part of the log with me. Wait, wait, and so people are talking about it at school. Do they know it's you? Um, not the ones that weren't involved in the log, because obviously staying anonymous to protect the integrity of the case is a big, is important. And so what's it like for you? You're like Clark Kent going around. You can't tell anybody you're Superman. (laughs) Yeah, somewhat. I mean, I'm not really, I didn't do this for fame. I'm not looking for that. I mean, it's cool that people know what we did, but. What are you talking about? Like, like I'm picturing you like in the lunchroom and people are talking about what you guys did. And then you have to keep your mouth shut and be like, you can't say like, oh, that's me. I don't overhear a lot of the background chatter, but some of my friends do. And I can imagine for them, it might be like, I don't know, hard to keep their mouth shut. And it's not hard for you to keep your mouth shut? Not at all, no. After the teacher got put on leave and the pedo database made the news, a young woman, an adult, came forward and said that she'd also been harassed by the same teacher years ago. She wrote a letter to the pedo database boys. She said, When we're young, we're told that adults know best, that they know everything. Now as an adult... The only thing I know is that stupid kids just turn into even stupider adults. When I was a student in this teacher's class, I felt helpless against his harassment and bullying. None of the other adults took my feelings seriously, not to mention the blind eye that teachers would turn to the creepy relationships that he had with other students. Hearing that the same thing was still happening in his class nearly seven years after I'd left makes me feeling sad and frustrated with the school system's lack of action. Thank you so much for standing up for all the students who didn't have a voice. You're very brave for taking a stand against something you knew was wrong. And you should be very proud of yourselves for that. Thank you. The boy told me that it felt good to read that. It made it feel like a bigger deal, what they'd done. Years ago, I was friends with a political reporter at the Rand Daily Mail, the big uh, opposition newspaper in South Africa back during the height of apartheid. They published story after story about terrible things the white government was doing back then. Over decades, it had little or no effect on the government at all. The brutality in Bantistans and suppressions of dissent continued. He and I talked once about what the point of publishing was in that setting. He said that even if it didn't seem to be doing much good right then, he and his editors felt that it was important that there was a record, that someone noted what was happening and wrote it down so that later, nobody could deny it happened. Can I say, okay, when I finished writing this story yesterday, that's where I ended the story because it seemed like a good way to capture what these middle school boys had done. But then um, today on my way to work, I thought about the Stop the Steelers 
in act one of today's show, I realized how that idea, that idea that if you make a factual record of what happened, a truthful record, that in the future, nobody can deny it. That idea feels like it's from just another era. Things are so different today. The Stop the Steelers uh, continue to believe a whole set of lies about the 2020 election being stolen. And they are trying to remake the world based on denying what really happened. And um, I know that is not an especially uplifting note to end the show on today. But um, I think in dark times, it does no good to pretend that you're not living in dark times. Today by Aviva de Kornfeld. She also produced Act Two. The people who put together today's show include Chris Bender of Zoe Chase, Sean Cole, Michael Comite, Cassie Halley, Stone Nelson, Catherine Raimondo, Will Peichel, Nadia Raymond, Ryan Rumry, Alyssa Ship, Christopher Swatala, Matt Tierney, and Diane Wu. Our managing editor is Sarah Abdurrahman. Our senior editor is David Kestenbaum. Our executive editor is Emmanuel Berry. Special thanks today to Sabrina Hyman, Frank Rizzo, Stephen Richard, Vanessa Barchfield, Robert Fitzgerald, Sandra Dowling, Cheryl Rosado, Sally Grubbs, Susan Knox, The Marietta Diner, Dan Egan, Ariel Potnick, Sabby Robinson, Sean Carter, Marilyn Thompson, Jack Hitt, Tim Conlon, Philip Rakita, and Emily Abbott. Our website, thisamericanlife.org, where you can stream our archive of over 750 episodes for absolutely free. Also, this list of favorites, videos, all kinds of other stuff there. Again, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, he and I went to karaoke together this week. He sang Britney Spears, but I don't know. He just never gets the lyrics right. All right, come on, honey, one more time. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. This American Life.